Well, as you heard the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, how many of you were calculating the carbon flow that there must have been for five loaves and two fishes to produce enough food to feed 5,000 men? And a touch left over. People who think about science know bread and fish are organic and contain carbon. I know one person here who had that thought when I preached on the same story in John's Gospel five years ago. Uh, I'm not sure if it crossed your mind this time, did it, Bob? Carbon flow. But where did the carbon and starch and water and amino acids come from? Uh, They're the things that make up bread and fish. So where did they come from? The glorious thing about that type of thinking is that it shows no doubt that this miraculous event took place. And because Bob has confidence this event happened, there is a basis for him to draw conclusions from it. Some conclusions about who Jesus is and what the kingdom of God will be like. Uh, Nowhere near a complete understanding, but enough to form a saving faith, a trust. It's the same for each of us who believes that this happened, whether or not you think about chemistry. Uh, It's hard to develop trust from myths and fables, but we're not asked to do that. God invites us to draw our conclusions from facts. And this is the only miracle that appears in all four Gospels, and we can draw some inferences from that. Uh, Each of the Gospel writers thinks that it is important in their separate tasks of telling us about Jesus. The story points to Jesus' compassion, the way he shares his ministry with his disciples, because it's they who hand out the fish and bread. Uh, It teaches us about his divine power, the picture of the kingdom of God where no one will ever go hungry, and a preview of the great banquet we will all enjoy when Jesus finally brings heaven to earth. And yet, you need to work these things out. Jesus did not feed 5,000 to make a point, to prove who he is. Once they'd collected the leftovers, they move on. There's no explanation from Jesus or Mark. We're left to think about this and to work it out for ourselves and to work out whether we will trust Jesus. The fact that the miracle appears in all four Gospels suggests that we should have great confidence this event occurred. Each Gospel writer drew on their own experience of Jesus and eyewitness accounts. As this Gospel was written only 30 years or so, after Jesus performed this miracle, there would have been plenty of eyewitnesses about, people who experienced that carbon flow. If the first readers had any doubts, they could go and check it out. And if it didn't check out, well, it wouldn't be in the Bible. So let's look at it and see what we can learn about Jesus. Mark starts by situating this story again on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is still followed by a large crowd. His humanity is clearly on display. We declared that in the Nicene Creed. He became truly human, and we see that here. Uh, Despite his divine powers, 
he gets hungry like the rest. He enjoys the company of his closest disciples. And like them, he needs a rest after a long day's work. When Jesus sees the large crowd is still with him, we're told Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Isn't that interesting? They were like sheep without a shepherd. In the Old Testament, kings were supposed to be shepherds of their people, but only Jesus would be the good shepherd. Anyway, Jesus had compassion on them, so he taught them. You might think Jesus had compassion on them, so he fed them. Or Jesus had compassion on them, so he cut his sermon short. But no, the way Jesus shows compassion, the way he shepherds his people, is to teach them. I'm sure you've heard people say, he's quite a good preacher, but a hopeless pastor. Or, he's a good pastor, but a hopeless preacher. They're almost contradictions. If you see how Jesus shepherds, how he pastors, because he does that by teaching. Many think, people think that pastoring is about cups of tea, listening, offering words of encouragement, being a shoulder to cry on, providing for practical needs, visiting the sick and, and that sort of thing. Uh, I've, in, in my ministry uh, over the last few years, I've been to six different mental health hospitals some many times. I know my way around RPA and the Chris O'Brien Lighthouse. I visited a number of people on their deathbeds. I mentor some young men over a few beers. All these things are important, but they are not this biblical picture of pastoring. So if you want a pastor like Jesus, you'd better learn how to teach. Like Jesus, that would involve studying the scriptures. Uh, I'm grateful every day for my four years at Moore College because they equipped me to pastor you by teaching you from God's word. Moore College is considered by some leading theologians overseas to give one of the three best biblical educations in the world. Just a 15-minute walk from here. And if you want to be pastored, you have to be open to be taught. That, that is one reason we have sermons. It's why I put so much of my time into preaching here and leading morning prayer and Bible studies, because I want to be a good shepherd. And if you've been here for a while and feel I haven't pastored you, it could be because I'm an inadequate teacher. But I suggest it could also be because you haven't been listening and haven't wanted to learn. Although I am always encouraged when I hear some of you say that you've learnt from some of the things that I've taught and, and, and particularly from other preachers here. That's a really important part of what we do here. But enough of that. We've got a, a miracle to talk about and conclusions to draw from it. Now, there are some people who suggest this miracle didn't happen. They suggest perhaps everyone uh, had taken along some food and the miracle was that Jesus got them to share it, uh, share it with their neighbours. 
And that's a nice story, but I don't think it's one that would find its way into all four Gospels, and there is no evidence to support it. It just doesn't fit with the story that Mark tells us. This is a remote place, the disciples said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. They wouldn't have needed to do that if they had enough food and just needed to share it better. Nor does it appear that there was a problem with a lack of money. Jesus said, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? One inference from that is that the disciples had enough money and weren't sure then that, that then was the right time to spend it. They don't say, we haven't got the money. They just said, should we do it now? Another inference is that there was enough food in the surrounding towns if the money was to be spent in that way. Uh, uh, others suggest that the disciples did have enough food and they were just trying to set up an apparent miracle. But there are problems with that also. If they had enough food, where would it have been hidden and how could you fool a crowd of 5,000 people? Oh, we know you've got it hiding over there. The details seem to me to preclude a natural explanation. All four accounts agree with the essential details. At least 5,000 people got fed from five loaves and two fish and everyone was happy. So what are we going to learn from this historical account that survived people checking with eyewitnesses, Jewish scepticism and opposition and three centuries of Roman persecution and yet people still believed? What are we to make of it when neither Jesus nor Mark tell us what it means? We have to work at building trust in Jesus. A bit earlier, Mark told us that Jesus had called himself a prophet who was without honour in his hometown. The greatest prophet of the Old Testament was Moses, who had led his people out of slavery in Egypt. He had called down manna, a bread-like substance from heaven when they were in the desert, when they were in the wilderness. And from that, they were fed for 40 years. Jesus was again in a remote place, a, a place completely devoid of convenience stores. And here we see Jesus himself feeding this huge crowd in a wilderness. Jesus embodies God's divine power and mercy. Jesus looks with God's eyes of compassion and goes one better than Moses, who called down manna from heaven. Jesus feeds the people himself. Jesus would be a better and more complete saviour than Moses. What better evidence would you need of who Jesus is than this feeding, if we have eyes that want to see? Jesus received the, the five small loaves and then takes control. Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in the green grass, so it was springtime. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Why do you think they did that? Maybe administrative convenience, but I suspect also to make it easier to count them. Sit people down in hundreds and fifties and it's much easier to calculate the crowd than adding up every head. It's also useful if you want people to trust that there were at least 5,000 people there. 
The food was distributed. As I've already noted, everyone had enough to eat. It's a preview of what it will be like in the kingdom of God. If you remember, that is what Mark said Jesus was teaching them about. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Well, now we see a picture of what the kingdom of God is going to be like. Everyone will have enough to eat. Jesus' disciples helped clean up. Enough to fill 12 baskets, probably symbolising the feeding being sufficient for the 12 tribes of Israel and perhaps the 12 tribes now being complemented by the 12 apostles. God would keep his promises to Israel in Jesus. And we're told, sorry, we're not told how the crowd reacted. John tells us that they thought that it showed that Jesus was a prophet, but Mark leaves out that detail. We have to work it out, which is one of the distinctive features of Mark's gospel. He tells us things and then leaves it to us to draw conclusions from it. And I want to suggest two things. First, we should see Jesus as the fulfilment of the promises made through Moses in the Old Testament. Jesus had the divine power to do this miracle and is it a mighty sign of who he is. Feeding 5,000 from five loaves and two fishes sounds very much like when God created the universe from nothing. It's a God-like thing to do. Second, I want us to recognise and delight in the mystery of God. We can't go back and interview the eyewitnesses, but to deny it, we would have to have evidence that this did not occur. And evidence is different from a logical argument. The logical argument is that these things don't usually happen. And we can't explain how this happened, so therefore uh, it didn't happen. That is not evidence. Evidence would be showing that Jesus was not there at the time, or that there was an alternative source of food, or showing that most people did not get food. That's evidence. We regularly use evidence to prove things didn't happen, but none exists. If someone believes this event did not happen, that's fine. But they're not doing it based on evidence. And because there is evidence for eyewitness accounts that it did happen, we have to work out who Jesus is. Mark is building his case for Jesus being the Son of God, one with the same divine power as God, who ultimately would die for us so that we might have eternal life. Mark wants us to see Jesus as the Son of God. He said that back in chapter 1. Mark has no hidden agenda. He wants us to trust Jesus and to work out from the stories he tells how Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But I also want us to think about what this story shows us about the world we live in and how we are actually connected to God or how we participate in God and his creation. For I want us to own that we live in an enchanted world. Not enchanted by magic, but enchanted by God. For the last few centuries, both Christians and people who are not Christians have been trying to argue there is a spiritual realm and a physical realm. Well, some will only say there's a physical realm, but if there are two realms, they're separate. Not just that there is a heaven and earth, 
but that the earth is only physical. And we can understand and master that through science. And this view says that if the spiritual exists, it's totally different from and other, and perhaps only internal in our minds. So we can live in a physical world, doing physical things, caring about our physical needs. And if we're spiritual, we can also do some spiritual stuff as well. And when we do that, we've stripped the spiritual away from the physical. And that is not how early Christians saw the world. They saw the two worlds wonderfully knitted together by God. Before the 12th century, people believed we lived in an enchanted world where the spiritual and the physical were mixed. But for reasons I won't go into now, that mystical unity was broken down. Study Aboriginal spirituality, and the two are connected. There's country and there's spirit, and they're not separated. They're intertwined. But that that unity has been broken, and the division only got stronger after the Reformation, which was so good in many ways, but awful in others, and breaking this sense that we live in an enchanted world is one of them. In the last few decades, we've gone even further and tried to understand God. Western thought, including some forms of Christian theology, has tried to take the mystery out of God and his creation. Knowing God has shifted from relating personally to God to having some intellectual mastery over God. The gospel is reduced to a few simplistic slogans. Jesus died for my sins. And when we just reduce it to that, we, we just lose any touch with the majesty of God. And that's not the God in creation that we see in this story. We cannot have any idea how Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. That is deliberately and wonderfully beyond us. Bob may be able to calculate the carbon flow, but he can't explain it. Jesus has mastery over his creation that is way outside anything that we can conceive. It's a mystery at its most beautiful. Just as Jesus created the universe and time out of nothing by his love and imagination for his own delight and purposes, he feeds a large crowd out of something physically just as modest and out of his love and mercy and for his purposes. And I hope one of those purposes is not just that people got fed, but that we are blown away by the wonder and mystery of who Jesus is. When we start to grasp this, move beyond the normal ways of thinking, we start to see the way God draws us into himself and the ways he wants to relate to us. We get to participate in him and the world he imagines and sustains. When we think, as Bob did, we have some sense of the wonder of God, but not divorced from the reality of bread and fish and carbon. When I run out of bread when I'm serving communion, I go back to the supply we keep on the table. Jesus just stays there with a small loaf in his hands and keeps giving and giving and giving and creating and loving and being utterly amazing. 
five loaves, two fish, and everyone totally satisfied. I don't know how he did it, and I don't really want to know how he did it. It's not my place to master the master, and I don't even want to try. I like mystery. I like the physical and spiritual being knitted together in a pattern that is beautiful, but I can't begin to understand. I like being able to participate in God by taking a piece of bread and a sip of wine, as we will do shortly, without knowing exactly how that works, but knowing it comes from God and it is what he wants and it is what he has made me to do. So let us return to the world enchanted by our God and draw closer to him in his compassion and his mercy and mystery. Let us come to him and eat as he gives and we receive with thanks. Let's overcome the familiar and see into the wonder of God and praise him. Praise him. Let's stand and sing praises to him now.